This week we discuss four stories including Disney's rumoured membership program, Netflix's $65 ad CPMs, the Paramount Plus Showtime bundle and DigiNet fast linear convergence. Listen on to hear more. Welcome to this week's edition of Inside the Stream. This is Will Richmond from Video News and Colin Dixon from Endscreen Media joins me as always. Hi there, uh, Colin. How is everything going? It's doing great. I just got back from a very hot, sweaty OTTX in LA yesterday, Will. It was nearly 100 degrees where I was and I think it's going to get hot up here in Northern California as well over Labor Day. I think we're looking at 96 here in sunny Sunnyvale, oh my goodness, uh, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. Get the air conditioning going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, one, one thing this week that I, I found fascinating is that, uh, as our listeners know, I watch a lot of Premier League, and one of the things I've noticed is that there's a lot of difference in quality between the games that I've been watching on different services, and uh, I'm not going crazy. I did an interview with a uh, Dr. Abdul Rayman, who's chief executive officer of a, a company called Simwave, about this, and uh, th- these these guys, he's, uh, he's uh, come up with this way of uh, live services benchmarking themselves uh, in quality, and his this quality index is really fascinating. It, zero to one hundred, and they really capture. Um, the experienced quality, not just the mathematical quality. And uh, it's a great way for companies to figure out what they don't know about their quality and benchmark themselves against their, uh, their, com- their competitors. So anyway, that's a fascinating look at that. People should just stop by the Endscreen Media website and uh, click on the latest episode of Endscreen Noise if they want to hear that interview. It's a fascinating interview. That sounds great. Well, it's not mutually exclusive. You could be going crazy as well as (laughs) experiencing real quality differences on sports, but we'll leave that to another day. We certainly will. But uh, we're going to do a sort of round the horn this week because there are a lot of stories that sort of caught our eye and and fascinated us. And I think you're going to get us started with, hey, isn't Disney getting into the membership business? Yeah, right. Well, the Wall Street Journal uh, reported this week that Disney is looking at launching a membership program similar to what Amazon Prime is or what Apple One is, where they would bundle um, the streaming experiences, Disney Plus, um, Hulu, ESPN Plus, with some benefits related to um the theme parks or merchandising or other commerce capabilities. And it sounds like it's still all pretty early stage. Um, Disney didn't really offer any details, but I, I would say on the surface, it feels like it makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, the company obviously has just such a broad range of different services and different products and different um, events, if you will, you know, different movies that launch and franchises that being able to do um, other tie-ins that would only be available to members, uh, I think would make a, a ton of sense. They, they actually did this. I remember in the early days of Disney Plus, they were making certain movies available um, only to Disney Plus users on a PVOD basis, um, early access. And 
uh, I, that actually, I think, was pretty successful for them. So you know, I think there's a lot of reason. There are a lot of reasons why some type of a membership program that knits together different aspects of Disney's assets, um, I, I think, could be very successful for them. Yeah, it could. Think? I mean, Disney Disney already has that. They already have. Um, you can buy a year pass to the parks, um, which is like hellaciously expensive, but you can you can buy it. Uh, so they already have sort of some aspect of this. But this, you know, this seems to be a, a real theme, Will. I was talking to Philippe Grolton, who's uh, the chief revenue officer. He's just become, he just got promoted at uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul. Uh, and he's now chief revenue officer there. And of course, he's that's uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul, probably best known for Crackle Plus, and has just purchased Redbox. And he, he'd actually told me that they were starting a, a rewards program there for people that watch Crackle Plus, allowing them to get rewarded for for watching for just watching the channel, and of course he's inherited another rewards program or membership program with uh, with um, the kiosks with the Redbox kiosks, and uh, that seems to me to be the gold in that particular company. Now, sure, there's a lot of legacy business with the thirty eight thousand kiosks that they have scattered in front of of walmarts and whatever all across the country but as you know that's a slowing business and probably steadily steadily declining business uh but this you know the membership program he said that there's like tens of millions of people in that membership program uh so that seems to me the goal there so maybe this is a trend maybe we're going to see a whole bunch of other companies start membership programs i know walmart's just adding video to its membership program. And oh my goodness, there's going to be video all over the place in these things. So it uh, could be a theme. Absolutely. I mean, I think the membership program also, the concept of it becomes even more valuable as the competition between different SVOD services heats up because it gives more value to the consumer and therefore uh, hopefully reduces churn, which is obviously a you know really question for the SVOD services. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I agree. I think membership type services or reward programs, you know, some blurring between the two, I, I think are going to become even more popular going forward. Uh, I, I think so. Although you know, with the Disney one, it's a bit it's a bit more difficult, right? If you don't live in close proximity to a park, then park visits are probably sporadic and very and very focused around when you have kids, I wonder, you know, just exactly how they're, what value that they're going to offer there for somebody that say lives in Nebraska, that's an, a Disney fan and maybe only visits, visits every 10 years or so to one of the parks or something. I, I, I don't know. I don't know how they're going to swing that, what sort of value they're going to bring to that, that type of customer, but you know, probably def, probably worth exploring and it'll be interesting to see if they actually go forward with it. Absolutely. Well, let's move on. As we said, we're going to kind of do it around the horn on this week's podcast. And uh, you have the next story, which is new pricing bundling from Paramount Plus and Showtime. I do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, so basically what, what Paramount is doing is that they are offering a bundle price now. Um, well, actually, they're doing two things, Will. One is they're offering a bundle price on Paramount Plus and Showtime. And the second thing is they've integrated the two tech stacks. 
So uh, basically, they're doing a promo which will allow people who have Paramount Plus to add Showtime or for people to buy them in a bundle, right? And the pricing is uh, uh, as follows. Uh, the Paramount Plus with Showtime bundle is available in the US to US subscribers for $7.99 a month with ads. That's what they call the essential plan. And $12.99 a month for the premium plan. That's with no ads. So that's... Uh, 33% discount and a 13% discount, respectively. And after October 2nd, the prices go up to $11.99 and $14.99 ad-free. And this is a pretty, this is a pretty good discount, Will, because uh, I think you can still buy, if you want, you can still buy Showtime separately for, for $10.99 a month. So why wouldn't you do the bundle if you wanted both of these? There's absolutely, so, so it's the same reasons the Disney bundle works so well. But they're also not forcing people who don't want to get Showtime to have it. So I'm a show, I'm a Paramount Plus subscriber. I am not particularly interested in getting the Showtime content, although maybe for a dollar more I might try it. Um, but and and that is exactly exactly I guess what they're trying to do. So I think this makes a lot of sense. I love the technical integration. Um, obviously, that simplifies things on the back end for Paramount Global. They've got one platform now that they can use for this. It creates a nice integrated experience. So it's easy to search across all of that content. You get recommendations in one place. So this makes just a whole bunch of sense. And I got a feeling that this is going to work really well for them. And I will, I hope the folks at Discovery are listening to what Paramount Plus, Paramount is doing. I think this is what they should be doing not forcing people to buy HBO and Discovery. You give them choice, allow them to, to buy it if they want, and then doing the technical integration on the back end, which allows uh, allows allows them to simplify their technical teams and give this nice integrated experience. What do you think? Are you gonna, are you gonna sign up for Paramount Plus with the Showtime bundle? Well, I already have Showtime and I have it without ads. In fact, I, I actually didn't know that, I don't know that there is a Showtime service there is, there is with not. ads right now. There is not. So this is going to be, right. So this is going to be a new offering from Showtime. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I'm not, sh I need to look into Paramount Plus closer to see if there's anything valuable there. But yeah, I mean, if it's just a small upcharge, then it probably will make sense. And, um, and I think, you know, your point about offering consumers choice, not being forced into a bundle is is key. I think that's really the key because not everybody is going to want all these different services and people are budget conscious and um, certainly, you know, have in mind their pay TV subscriptions or former pay TV subscriptions where they had lots of stuff that they felt they were paying for that they didn't actually use. So the industry wants to be careful not to get into that mode as well. Yeah, and I really think this makes a lot of sense. One of the things that I think um, is really advantageous for content providers is to uh, make it easy for people to upgrade to new content that they may want to try, um, but are not certain that they're interested in. So I think that helps. But it also, I think it's really important to provide different price points and value your content in different ways and let's be clear you know showtime content is distinct and different 
from the typical CBS content that you find inside of Paramount Plus. And so providing cost differentiation between those two, I think is absolutely the right thing to do. And, uh, you know, the bundle gives people an easy way into trying out Showtime and seeing if they want it and seeing if they want to keep it. It makes it much easier to keep it if you, you know, if you're even marginally interested in it. So, uh, you know, great, great move, I think, a very sensible thing for them to do and one that I think uh, others will be looking at. Okay, well, let's move on to the next item, which I'm going to take, and it relates to Netflix's plans for an ad-supported service. There was, um, again, a Wall Street Journal article this week that seemed to reveal a few more details. Um, Netflix is apparently looking for a steep $65 CPM for its ads, it may launch the ad-supported service as early as November 1st. And uh, that it comes before the spring launch, which is what they had mentioned before. They also are looking to limit the amount that any advertiser can spend on an annual basis to $20 million in order to uh, make sure that there isn't uh, over-frequency by any particular brands or advertisers. And um, not and uh, last but not least is the hiring of two senior ad executives, um, Jeremy Gorman and Peter Naylor, both who were at Snap. Peter is uh, actually someone who's um, spoken a number of times at video news events, and uh, you know both are top-notch ad executives, and I think that really burnishes uh, both their appointments really burnish Netflix's commitment to ad-supported, uh, to an ad-supported um, tier. So uh, all of that seemed, I think, pretty positive for Netflix. They're also, I think, looks like going to limit their ad load to four minutes per hour, which is on the low side. I think only Peacock has um, committed to that level of uh, reduced advertising. So that would also, I think, be a pretty friendly experience for viewers. Um, and the only, well, let's leave, let's leave it at that, and then we'll talk a little bit about uh, what the journal reported on targeting as well. So what, what's your take on all that, Colin? Wow, you, you threw in a lot there, Will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, recapping. So I, I think you're absolutely right. The, this is, you know, the, they're obviously very, very serious about this, and they're coming to market quite a bit quicker than I think they initially thought they could. They were They were very, very cautious when they first announced this, and seem to punt the the idea of launch into next year, but it seems like things have moved along much, much quicker, which actually you and I both expected because we both know that the ability to do this now is is well known and, and it shouldn't shouldn't take too long to integrate. The big surprise to me is this creation of this artificial scarcity, which is by limiting the amount that any individual advertiser can spend to $20 million. Uh, that, that's, uh, I don't think I've ever heard of uh, a company doing that. Um, but it does certainly take care of a couple of issues, right? So uh, it should help with ad, uh, ad frequency, over frequency, people being seeing the ad too many times. Um, and it does create this, I guess, sort of scarcity value. So people... A lot of people coming in at 20 million 
So maybe that means that they'll get, uh, they'll, they'll pretty much fill out all the slots. And of course, it, it, once again, limiting to four minutes an hour. But I got to ask you about the, the, the limited targeting capabilities that they're giving. It sounds a lot like just traditional TV targeting, right? Yeah, well, the journal reported that um, Netflix is limiting its targeting to a, um, a set of options, including uh, people that are watching Netflix's top 10 shows in the U.S., uh, to target people that are watching a specific genre of show, uh, whether that be comedy or drama or something else, and also to target ads in a specific country. Those are all valuable targeting criteria, but they're certainly not nearly as um, rich as lots of other services are um, currently yeah. offering. So, you know, I think to some extent, Netflix is starting in a very simple way, kind of a walk before you run. And I think, by the way, that applies to the $20 million cap as well, because uh, over-frequency is, as we all know as viewers, a, big a problem. critical yeah. issue, exactly, a huge problem. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, Netflix, I think, is starting slow. They're kind of under-promising and maybe looking to over-deliver start with a simple set of um, targeting criteria, uh, get advertisers into the Netflix fold, get them comfortable, shake some of the, um, you know, shake out some of the initial bugs, no doubt that there, there will be, um, and then sort of ramp up from there. So yeah, I think it's, um, you know, I think it's a, certainly if they come out by November 1st, it's well ahead of what, they, what, what they've announced as their schedule as well. Yeah, yeah. And I think probably keeping it simple is the right way to go here, Will. I mean, I, I've no doubt that they're going to roll this out on a worldwide basis. And let's be honest, the the rules about personal information, is it's a jumble out there. Um, GDPR in Europe, we have California. Uh, we, have, we have the California rules. It looks like other states are moving ahead on rules as well. And... I know in various geographies, the rules are all different. So if you keep it simple and anonymous as they as they are, then that probably simplifies things there. But it, it makes me wonder, OK, so you can create this this scarcity value and you keep the ads at low. Will it sustain a sixty five dollar CPM? I don't know. It's it seems awfully high. Uh, for something that's relatively untargeted. I mean, this sounds like top of funnel stuff, right? Not bottom of funnel. So oh, yeah, yeah. So it's just really, you know, establishing your brand and and you know, uh, just just those sort of typical type of top funnel metrics that are that are being established here. And I don't know. The rest of the market seems to be going the other way, right? Focused it focused on much more targeted and 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 action with interactive ads and. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think we also need to keep in mind that there's huge pent-up demand by advertisers for Netflix inventory. So there's going to be an initial spurt of interest for sure, even with limited targeting. And um, obviously Netflix will have to refine things as, as time goes forward. But uh, there are a whole lot of people that have been wanting to get access to Netflix's audience for a while. Um, and that, I think, will keep them going for a, a good while. <laughs> Yeah, I'm wondering, so it makes me wonder where the money's going to come from. I know we've speculated a lot that a lot, a lot of the money that's been coming into CTV has actually been coming in not from television, but, but from uh, other digital advertising. 
And there's a lot of, I, you know, I, I regularly ask panelists about where their money come, is coming from. And a lot of them are telling me that it's coming actually from other digital advertising, not from television. But this feels like television in so many respects, right? Uh, maybe this is going to pull more money over from traditional TV uh, and, and help drive that into the CTV economy. So I don't know. I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens there. But uh, boy, <laughs> they're moving ahead very quickly, which is, I think, probably a good thing for them. Absolutely. Uh, well, Colin, we're down to our last few minutes, but I know you also wanted to touch on a piece that you wrote this week um, where you see a converging of the so-called DigiNet channels with fast channels. Yeah, yeah. So for those folks that aren't aware of the DigiNets, these are TV channels that became available when we switched to digital back in 2007. We switched to ATSC 3.1.0 uh, rather, and that uh, really allowed the broadcasters to break up their, the frequencies that they're on into many, many channels. A lot more bandwidth was liberated by doing this. And now, so typically when you put up an antenna, now you find on channel nine that there's channel 9.1, 9.2, 9.3. Uh, so every channel is like that now. There's a lot of sub-channels and these, these are called DigiNets. And Will, there are 7,000 of these darn things. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely massive. You know, 7,000 DigiNets scattered across, uh, well, I've, well I've, you know, 210 DMAs in the US. Well, this market, to me, uh, if you look at the DigiNets and the way the DigiNets have grown up, there's this parallel market for linear that has been growing up now with the fast linear channels like Pluto TV and Zumo uh, and, um, and, and all of the, the smart TVs. They have their own Samsung TV Plus, LG channels, Vizio Watch 3, etc. Well, it looks to me like these two markets are beginning to converge. And the reason I say that is I've been looking pretty closely at some of the deals that are, that are happening and in, in particular how the smart TV manufacturers are expanding the number of channels they have in their fast linear services. And this week, there's an announcement by Scripps that is taking three of its most popular DigiNet channels, Ion, Bounce, and Grit, and launching four channels. Yeah, I think it's four channels on Vizio's Watch Free. So you can now watch Ion, Ion Mystery, Bounce XL, and Grit Extra uh, on Vizio's Watch Free interface. And there are now 200, over 250 channels here on this will. So Jeffrey Wolf, who's Chief Distribution Officer of Scripps Networks, he sees Watch Free as an opportunity to expand the connected TV market. He says, working with Vizio, we are able to reach more consumers and broaden the audience for our very popular brands and wide array of programming that entertains, informs, engages millions of consumers. And Scripps, Scripps did something last year, which, was, which really emphasized how this market is converging. Scripps bought a, a, a service called Newsy, which is a digital native news service. And last year, it completely relaunched this service. It's given it a professional newsroom in Atlanta. It's now got bureaus in 14 major markets. And when it relaunched it, not only now is Newsy available just in just about every digital 
TV platform, CTV platform out there. But it is also now available in 80 markets on DigiNets. So you can you can stick up you your over-the-air antenna and you can watch Newsy on a variety of different channels in your market. So these are two things that, that suggest to me that these markets are converging. And there's another thing, Hearst, which launched this service called Very Local. This is a CTV app that includes a live channel and a bunch of on-demand content. So they're also, they're tapping their local stations to really populate this. So there's a very local in, I think, 14, 14 different markets or so. And they're promoting the original content on their DigiNets to get people to download the very local, the very local app and start watching there. So all of this tells me that these two markets, these the DigiNet market and the virtual linear market, they're really sort of blurring into one market world. People are launching channels in both areas now, using brands from one to launch channels in another and I actually asked my panelists about this and there just seemed to be general agreement that these two markets are coming are coming together and becoming a single blurred linear market for consumers. And I, I should say that just one more thing with, with Newsy, um, Hearst, uh, sorry, Scripps says it can reach 90% of the US population through the DigiNets and through its fast linear agreements. So, you know, complete coverage with Newsy. So definitely worth the investment, I think, in beefing up the newsroom and establishing this as a completely new 24-7 news service, uh, news news channel in in consumers' living rooms. Yeah, all, all that's well said, I think, <clears throat> I think Colin. Um, and I, I agree with you. There's just... It makes so much sense that brands be leveraged across DigiNets and fast channels and vice versa, uh, because it's essentially repurposing the same content, but just being delivered in a different way to audiences, depending upon what they prefer, right? So um, it seems like it's just another way to monetize existing content, which is always smart. Yeah, Uh, there is one little fly in the ointment here, though, Will, and I think we've talked about this on the podcast. Uh, they, the TVs themselves, the smart TVs themselves, do an awful job at helping consumers switch between the connected TV side of their television and the broadcast TV side of their television. These are usually very separate worlds, and they're, they're, it's very, very difficult for a consumer to, to track a brand like Ion, for example, across uh, if they're watching it on a DigiNet, to track that into on-demand assets that might be available in an Ion app that's running on that smart TV. In fact, uh, Vizio is probably one of the only ones that have done anything constructive here with their jump pads that, that, that allows a broadcaster to connect the two together. So if you're watching a DigiNet, you can direct people to the, to the app that's running on that to watch that on-demand content that's there as well. So, you know, that's uh, that's that's on the smart TV manufacturers. They need to do a better job in integ- integrating that. Certainly the broadcasters are thinking about them as a single market. It's time for the TV manufacturers to think about that as well. 
Fair enough. Well, uh, we have covered a lot of ground on this week's podcast, Colin. We've covered four different subjects. So hopefully our listeners are still with us, and um, we will cover even more next week, right? Well, I, I, I sure hope so. I mean, I thought there were four very interesting stories, so fun to talk about. But anyway, let us know. Is this too much? Yeah. Doing this, these round the horns, is it just too much information or you'd like to do us more? Why don't, you, why don't you comment on the postings on our website or send us an email? You can do that by actually just send it to info at endscreenmedia.com and I'll, I'll make sure Will gets a copy. Sounds good, Colin. Well, thanks everybody for listening on, in on this week's version of Inside the Stream and wishing everybody a happy Labor Day if you're observing it. And we'll see you again next week. Inside the Stream is a production of in-screen media and video news, all rights reserved.